This is Sacred Tension, a podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. And your name is? I'm the hangnail that just won't quit. Oh, no. I, I said that one earlier. <laughs> I'm, I'm referencing a drag queen YouTube series where they always say ridiculous things like, I'm that book about the Russian Revolution you never read and is now under your coffee table collecting mold that'll probably kill you. Katya. <laughs> I'm Nathan Adams, but I'm publicly known as Queen Elizabeth of the South, Ida Carolina, the fabulous drag queen. One of the most fabulous drag queens in the South, in my opinion. Oh, you're sweet. She is absolutely gorgeous. If you haven't seen her, you are missing out. Well, and I think you're one of the best cashiers at grocery stores in the South. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I, I take that as a compliment. I take my job very seriously. I know. All right. So we are following up. This is a two-part series about being queer in Christian school. Uh, In the last episode last week, we covered being gay in evangelical Christian high school. This week, we're covering being gay in Christian private college. Because for some reason, we anticipated we'd want to make this into a two-part series and decided to go back to Christian college. Yeah, exactly. You you know, we did that just for this show. It was a sociological experiment, or at least that's what I'll tell myself when I shiver (laughs) at night from all the PTSD. From all the trauma that we lived through. (laughs) How did that experiment go, Nathan? Terribly. Yeah, Uh, I would say say it went terribly as well. I managed to get a bachelor's degree but and a couple of friends who I still talk to, but that's about it. Yep, yep. And really, really, we were, our friendship was bonded together in the fire. (laughs) It was. It was forged together. It's like war trench buddies. It's like... Exactly. So, to give some background, I uh, dropped out of the Christian high school that we were talking about in the last episode. Right. I had I had a mental breakdown, partially due to my sexuality, and uh, dropped out. I did eventually get my diploma, and then I because you like homeschooled the next year for I homeschooled the next 12th year grade for twelfth grade after I dropped out, and after that I went into Youth with a Mission for two years. Youth with a Mission is a huge missions organization. Now, if you have not yet listened to my episode about that with ex-Scientologist Chris Shelton about whether or not Youth with a Mission is a cult, definitely check that out. It's a fascinating episode. So I was in Youth with a Mission for two years, and then after that two years, went to Montreat College, tiny Christian school here in the mountains of North Carolina. So Nathan, what was, what was your timeline? Well, I did eighth and ninth grade, and we met when I was in ninth grade, and you were a junior. And then the next year, there wasn't um, enough money for me to continue going to Asheville Christian Academy. And also, my family had some pretty traumatic events that happened, which kind of forced me to homeschool myself, which was basically becoming a caregiver at home. And eventually, I went and got my GED in what would have been my senior year. And then... I started college properly because I've been doing dual enrollment and stuff. I started college properly as a freshman the same semester you did. Yes. Because you had taken the time off and you're a couple years more decrepit than I am. Exactly. Okay, so we started... joints, Grandpa. <laughs> so we started at Montreal College together. Now... Well, no, you started a semester before I me. started a semester before you. Now, Montreal College did recently make news, international... No, national news for... Uh, a huge controversy over their covenant in which a lot of teachers left, a lot of professors left. Matt Langston, with whom I did the Nashville Statement series, was one of them who um, 
could not sign their covenant of faith, which included having to agree that marriage is between one man and one woman. And so that was that was that also included some language about that implied sticking to a very literalist interpretation of the Bible. Exactly. Okay. so so lots of lots of dictating of very sticky points of contention among Christians that aren't really part of the what's the main creed? It's not the night. Is it the Nicene? Nicene. Maybe it's the apostles. apostles. Yeah, apostles and Nicene. You know, the, the main stuff. The main stuff. The big stuff. Right. All right. So one of my big memories uh, at Montreat was a local church on campus for about the duration of our, of our time at Montreat was embroiled in this massive, massive political battle. And they were splitting. And it was this horrific just incredibly destructive thing in the church, in that whole community, in the college, in the town, where they were splitting over homosexuality. No, 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 Stephen. Don't you know? They told us over and over again. It wasn't about homosexuality. No, 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 no. They weren't splitting over homosexuality. They were splitting over the sovereignty of God. That was the real issue. (laughs) That was the real issue. It was actually about... It's not because we hate the faggotses. It's because we believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. Sure. Don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. Exactly. All right. So basically, from the very get-go at Montreat, there were problems in that community. Well, I think it'd be interesting because this is kind of about our story. I think you should tell why you ended up going to college and why you ended up going to Montreat and then my story because I think those are two very... Because we obviously didn't have a great experience okay. in Christian high school and so I think it's very interesting to look at how we ended up back how in the we, same... How we ended up in the same setting. Okay, well, so now I'm going to tell this story. I do not want it to reflect poorly on my parents. So... If my parents or people who know my parents are listening, um, this is this is not intended to be malicious in any way. I they were trying to care about you. They were trying to keep yeah, your no, life they, going. they were they were doing the best they could with what they were given. Okay, so I understand their very positive intentions. Absolutely, I do too. So I was when I was in youth with a mission. I was in a shooting. I was in the famous Denver shooting, 2007, when I was 19 years old, and that is what ended my. That, that was what ended my time in YWAM. So I came home. I was recovering for about eight months, and my life was wrecked. My life was just totally, totally wrecked. And I was dealing with these two big things. I was dealing with my sexual orientation and trying to come to terms come to terms with that because I was kind of realizing the ex-gay ideology that I'd been given and that I was trying to live. It just doesn't work, and if I felt like I was left in this impossible place and i was dealing with intense trauma and ptsd from the shooting and so i had those two big things and my life was just totally overwhelmed well, I, was, I don't think you can discount also being a young man and trying to figure out where what your place in the world yeah, is where absolutely. you're going not to mention your constant struggle with whether liking Marilyn Manson made you a bad person. <laughs> yes. You were dealing with a lot. I was dealing with a shit ton back then. After eight months of just working at a local store and and trying to work this through on my own, basically, as best I could, my parents sat me down one day and said, your life is going nowhere. You, have, you need to go to school. Your two options are the local community college or Montreat College. Classes start in two weeks. Choose now. Because they wanted your yeah. life to not stagnate. They exactly. Wanted no, and, to keep and going. I totally, I totally 
I totally get it. And it was, I mean, it was pretty awful. They kind of shanghaied me and my, and they had, um, they had orchestrated this behind my back where they'd been talking to the admissions office. And then they, they kind of sprung this trap on me. And I was just like, well, I mean, I like music. I'm taking voice lessons. I might as well, um, go to Montreal and you be a voice major. You are oversimplifying like a motherfucker. How so? <laughs> because you were like, I am called by the Lord to study music. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Okay, I am, call- I am called by God to study music. And uh, so I guess I'll go to Montreal. You started glowing whenever you talked about it. If only because you put a flashlight on your face because you felt that holy about y- it. Yeah, I did. And so... Also, you had a very dim view of AB Tech and community college. You were like a little too... I was I was a bit too superior for community college. Um, my ways have been um, reformed since yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I, our lives would have been so different had someone taken the blue pill. All right. So, what what's your story uh, leading up to Christian okay, school? I'll stop teasing you for a minute and talk about me. <laughs> um, somewhat similar. Uh, I had gotten my GED the previous fall, and. I think I'd been, I can't remember if I'd still been taking classes or not since the getting the GED, but back when my parents had health insurance and back when I was still young enough and it was okay to stay on your parents' health insurance, you know, when we were still um, benefiting from the economic boom of the 90s, (laughs) um, my dad you know, I had turned 18. And so my dad was like, in order to stay on my health insurance, you have to be a full-time student. And I was like, okay, I mean, I've been taking classes and dual enrollment. School was something that came very naturally to me. I was like, well, I'm 18. The next step is to go to college. I'm just, I don't know where I want to go. I'm just going to go to AB Tech. And because I had the GED, my options were limited because North Carolina and their infinite wisdom doesn't allow you to go straight from having a GED to a state school, which I think is stupid because if you have a state issued thing saying you've are good enough to finish high school. You should be able to go into one of their state colleges, but you had to either get an associate's degree at a community college first or take so many courses for take so many courses to, before you transferred. And so my options were limited and my family didn't have a lot of money. And so it wasn't really feasible to be driving or moving out of state because that would take money and be complicated and I would be farther away from my support network. So it was just kind of, you need to go to college, go to AB Tech. And Steven started at Montreat that same semester and I needed to get out of my house. Living at my house was a terrible situation for me. It was bad for my family. It was bad for me. And one of my mentors at the time was saying something, trying to get my life moving and was like, Nathan, I don't care if it's perfect or not. You're never going to find the perfect opportunity. You just need to get things moving. You need to get out of that house so you can begin to heal from all the terrible things that have happened to your family and the codependence it's created within you. So I don't care. Just get out of your house. So I was hanging out with Stephen at Montreat, getting to know people. People were really nice to me. People seemed to really like me. I was there all the time. There were people who later swore up and down I was a student that semester, but I was not. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of seemed, it was in the area. It took my GED and it had dorms. So it's, and I was having a good time hanging out there. And my best friend, through high school and post ACA, like literally Stephen was like my only friend after Asheville Christian Academy, kind of still my only friend at Asheville Christian Academy, but there were at least more people around. So someone who was kind of a bedrock of love and support for me at that time in my life 
was going to be there. So it just, it's, it seemed to make sense. And I didn't know if I was going to stay there. I didn't know if I was going to transfer. I was just like, need to get out of my house. This seems to work. So Montreat was when the shit hit the fan for me. <clears throat> my life was pretty miserable in high school. Uh, but I think Montreat was when it, it got so bad that my life was, was at stake because there were, there were just so many things that I was dealing with. I, I am learning disabled, and so I, I've always struggled with school. I was struggling with my academics. But also, I was struggling with PTSD from the shooting and, and looking back, realized that I just wasn't getting the help that I needed. But then there was the added element of my sexuality. Now, by this point, like many people, I had realized that ex-gay stuff, reparative therapy, trying to change from gay to straight just did not work. And you hadn't quite admitted it to yourself at the time. I hadn't quite admitted it to myself at the time, but but it was dawning on me. And so basically the only option that was left was denial or celibacy, both of which are kind of the same thing. But when I say denial, I mean just pretending I this thing didn't exist at all. Or have any relevance in your life. Or had any relevance in my life. Or that I was called to a life of celibacy. And this was inc- this was crushing. This killed me. And it was deeply traumatic. And I actually think that I have more trauma from, from that time of my life. I have more trauma from trying to, from realizing, okay, I'm going to be, I, I can't get rid of this thing. And being trapped in that place of feeling trapped between my sexual orientation and my faith and feeling like there was truly no way out, feeling like a cornered rat, I, I feel like that was, I have, I, I carry more self-inflicted trauma and church-inflicted trauma from that time than from high school. Well, and it, that was the point because you finally... It- so much pressure built from all those things you finally kind of lanced the boil painfully because that first semester when you were there and I wasn't yet was when you posted the back when remember when notes on Facebook were a thing kids when you could blog on your Facebook and people gave a shat yeah well he came out in like this long lengthy yeah. two-part angsty Facebook and, note. and that and that coming out note was basically that coming out note was basically me saying you know I I don't know if this is right or not. I don't know what this means. I'm I not making pronouncements about my future. Yeah. I'm, it was I, basically like one sentence of coming out and two pages of caveats. Exactly. And and basically all it said was, stop trying to fix me. Stop trying, you know, I, I'm, I know that I can't change this anymore. I don't know what that means, but I'm gay. And, and I did actually, I think, use the word gay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You definitely and, used the word gay. I, I don't know if maybe... I think you were probably less definitive than you think you were. Probably. Like you, it probably wasn't less. I feel like it was less like stop trying to fix me and more like give me some space while I still try and fix myself because you've always been very reticent. Like you're the kind of person who's like, well, maybe possibly I'm gay. (laughs) And And then like six months later, well, possibly I'm gay. And then six months later, well, I'm gay, sort of. Like it takes you. I I think. And and so throughout college, I, I enter because I felt like a cornered rat. I think my identity crisis was so intense it gave other people identity crises <laughs> one day i'd be like i'm bi i'm straight i'm gay i'm bi i'm gay i had arguments with people about your sexuality lest we forget <laughs> yeah i know and so 
I entered this incredibly volatile place. And the Dane, and I know a lot of people who have been here and who are in that place. It is the place of realizing you're gay or in the more evangelical terms, same sex attracted, that isn't going to change. You feel like you can't slide on any of your theology because that's such a fundamental part of your identity, but you also can't change your orientation. And that creates this horrific dissonance, and that is an incredibly volatile and dangerous place. Well, you and, feel like you're losing something so in, so in, like, homosexuality, your sexuality is made to be such a big thing so that if you feel like you're, like, finally admitting that you're gay or that you're not normal or what the Lord wants or heterosexual, then all of a sudden everything else come, becomes more precious because it's like you've lost so much credibility that you can't lose anymore. Like you become so fastidious and clingy to everything else because what you've lost is so big and so precious. Absolutely. And, and you know, being a young man, being in my early 20s and looking at the future and saying, I may never have a family. I may never have a meaningful partnership. And then being told that the church should fulfill those needs. The church should step into my life and, and provide that kind of community. When the simple reality is that the church never could, never did do that. They never, they, they never did that. I tried. I tried to have those kinds of friendships. I tried to have those kinds of connections within a church community. And the church was just not built, is not built, and I don't think ever feasibly will be built well, you were looking to for grapes. maintain that you were looking for grapes in an apple basket. Exactly. Because there was a long string of gentlemen callers and you were just like, these are my very good friend. And you were like falling in love with all yes. these straight boys in college. Exactly. And then you did, it would tear and you up inside and it wouldn't work out. And the friendship would not be fulfilling or it would get co too codependent for them. And or it would whatever, implode. And it would implode. And like, there was like literally like five to seven, like, 10. I mean, I mean, there was a trail of just destroyed relationships in college because I was unable to accept. I knew I was gay, but I was unable to accept that I was gay. And I was was trying to find that support. But this this erotic energy entered all of my friendships with men. And this was the but and, and here's the thing. I was told by both the gay celibate world and the ex-gay world, that male relationships were the answer, that male friendship was the solution. Because you said early in the last episode that your father, one of the things your dad said was they, they don't relate to their peers well, and that's what creates the wound, and that's what becomes sexualized. And so if you can learn to relate with your peers, but it actually just makes things worse because you don't have a proper outlet for all those feelings, and you're trying to funnel them out the wrong way. Yes, exactly. Because for me getting into my experience because like I mean I walked into college and I was just like I was still very much of the whole hi I'm gay I'm gonna fix that someday but and I'm also gonna pick up parasailing at some point <laughs> and like I was just like you know you could like I was so gay you could hear Julie Andrews singing clang 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 with the trolley when you walked by my hallway <laughs> and I was just out there being fabulous you I could mean, hear the phantom of Barbara Streisand <laughs> <laughs> well, I would think a faggot lives in that room. Um, I mean, 
It's interesting, though, because I think I was more closeted than I think, because I remember, because I've talked to people who knew me in college, and they're like, oh, you're so much more open about yourself. You were so, like, ashamed of who you were. And I never felt like I was, but I think as a survival mechanism, because I knew the society didn't like it, I did slowly, less and less, like, I started toning myself down. Right. And I also, one thing I was very aware of in college was I never fucking wrote down. Mm. that I was gay. It was never on paper. It was, it was never on, never paper on the ink. internet because you, because I never wanted to get, I mean, I got caught up in the labyrinthian web of Christian college disciplinary systems, which can really fuck somebody up. And it don't yes. matter. It don't matter if you're gay, straight, whether you're a goody two shoes, whether you're not a goody two shoes, like the, I've heard tons and tons of stories of people just getting, just their lives destroyed and getting lost in the system destroyed in that evangelical christian college like moral penal system just for taking it a bit too far with their girlfriend and having sex and suddenly it's the end of the fucking world and they have and, and they and their academics are threatened they their time is threatened with probation i mean just endless and and it, and once that happens it's kind of endless i think anybody who's been around any number of people who have been through christian colleges hear these stories it doesn't matter like the actual ramifications of what they did or whether or not they were guilty or whether or not you know it's it's not like like there's the stories are all unique and they're all terrible ways that things get blown out of proportion and people get railroaded yeah and so i was very well aware of that and i wasn't going to write down anywhere hi i'm nathan adams and i'm gay because i didn't want that to in any way be possibly used against me right but one of the benefits of being so chill about the fact that i i guess at the time you i i mean i said i was gay i didn't have a problem saying it but you know a lot of ex-gays or side B people prefer to say they have same-sex attractions. Yes. It's like one of the benefits of being so chill about the fact that I was gay or had SSA and not being like self-hating about it and not freaking out about it was that I was able to develop actual male friendships. You were able to develop actual friendships. You didn't leave this trail of destruction in your wake. Well, and especially with did. men. Like you like you you had some success making with, friendships with girls a yeah. little bit and i mean it was still not as productive i guess as mine were but like especially with dudes like you couldn't you it was couldn't impossible keep dude friends to save your life i was radioactive like the these violent delights have violent ends exactly. i think it's a very good way of describing your friendships <laughs> exactly. with men at montreal college whereas for me like i became very close and i'm still very close with a lot of guys yeah from montreal college because i was just like yeah i'm attracted to dudes and like a lot of times i could even express to them i think you're beautiful or yeah and it's fine or dylan like i straight up fell in love head over heels with dylan and in, it was okay in college and like we hung out all the time and just one day i was like you know what i know you're straight but and I'm just telling you this because I feel like if I tell you, it'll help it kind of die down and me deal with it because it wasn't like an unhealthy emotional thing. It was just like it was like a chemical thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I admit this, I feel like it'll be more manageable. I'm like completely head over heels in love with you. Yeah. And I think you're a great person and I know you're straight and I'm 
I was close with his girlfriend too. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't make any difference. He was just like, well, I'm completely straight. We're buds. Yeah. End of end of topic. End of end of and topic. And it did exactly how I thought it would. I th- once I expressed it, it was. It didn't. It wasn't this violent passion yeah. that was bottling up inside of me whenever I saw his beautiful, beautiful body. <laughs> I still and talk about how wonderful his butt is with his wife Katie. Like we'll just be, <laughs> like we'll be in a taco stand in Asheville, and he'll walk away to go get more drink or something, and I'll be like, "Dat ass," and she'll be like, "I know." <laughs> <laughs> and so this is something that he's my lumpy space prince (laughs) this is something that i have been talking about for a long time and i've mentioned this several times on the podcast is that this kind of repression that i experienced is a blunt instrument it isn't a repression is not a fine instrument with which you can go into your psyche and just cut out the little things that you want to get rid of it's a blunt instrument and so if you shut down your sexuality if you shut down your erotic energies you're going to shut down your capacity for friendship you're going to shut down your capacity for relationship in general and for community at least that has been my experience and the experience of many celibate gay people i have met and and it resulted in just torture it resulted in for torture all involved. for for everyone for everyone around me and nathan you probably remember this it, my life was a was an ongoing ferris wheel where I, I it was like a runaway ferris wheel where i would i would find a way to deny it i would find a way to rationalize it deny it figure it out in some way and and that was the the upturn of the of the Ferris wheel, and it was all right. It was good for a while, and then I would either hit this... either you're making strides in like being attracted to women, or you're bisexual, or you found a new man to focus your attentions exactly. on. You had this passionate friendship, or, or a spiritual spend... discipline, or a or a way to or a or I'd read a new book, or and a new would... or a new planning system, or a new planning. System. I don't know if he's covered this on this podcast, but Stephen is like you know how Dolores Umbridge is about cat. <laughs> like cat china that's the way he is about planning systems oh i have a new way to organize my day this is the storybook system that's that's a different that's a different subject we can we can well yes yes (laughs) sorry um and and so that was the upswing that was the and i would read some book that would posit some theory about why i'm gay or you throw yourself into schoolwork or anything any sort of distraction any distraction or anything to get me through it and then i'd hit the top of the ferris wheel and that was that was the mountaintop where it'd be like oh my god I figured this out. I found out a way to live. And then something would happen. Or the crisis point of denial would boil over. The crisis point of denial would boil over. And then something would happen. And I would hit this place... Uh, something something would happen. I would I would go to a movie and the lead would be really hot. Mm. Or, or just something would happen and I would realize, oh shit, I'm still gay. And I still haven't figured this out. And then the plummet was so huge and so hard and so destructive. And then I would hit bottom and then I would start to somehow rationalize it and climb up again. Now, And each time I went through this cycle, now this cycle could last for a week to months. Oh, yeah. It could last a whole semester or it could last a week. And each time I went through this cycle, it got worse. Finally... 
And, and part of this, I, I left a bloodbath in my wake. I mean, I it was just total destruction. I one of the longest cycles was when I met a I met a girl. We got together, and we were by the end of the by by the time it ended, we were talking about marriage. She I mean, ended up moving from two hours away and living in my basement. Yeah, she she moved here to be with me. She she moved in with Nathan to to be with me to be in well and in also the to area. get out of her family situation. and also to I get, do think moving was good for her I do think moving was good for her I don't regret that that she moved or that we helped her or that we helped her but finally and, and we were talking about marriage we were really trying to build a life together and then and then that downturn happened on the Ferris wheel and it destroyed her and it destroyed a lot of the people around us or in this community that we kind of built up and and then another on other cycles i i found um the gay celibate world wesley hill for example side b side yeah side b in in gay christian terms wesley hill wrote a book called washed and waiting and i read that book and it's about being gay and celibate and living in accordance with traditional church uh rules and that also destroyed me because looking into a future where not only I had to be celibate, where but where I couldn't have meaningful connection, where I couldn't, where I had to wake up alone every single morning, go to bed alone and wake up alone every single, every single night and morning for the rest of my life, that terrified me. And then that would start another downward spiral. Well, and one of the things to connect it kind of back to like the whole like being at a Christian school thing, I think also... Part of it, what, like, but also spinning off your cycle, like, one of the things that made it so difficult, especially for me, was that for a good long time, aside from the softball team, which was kind of soft out, we were the only out people at the college. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would, I didn't write it down on paper, but it was kind of like... I wouldn't even call it an open secret because it wasn't that much of a secret. Like I told people I was gay and people knew I was gay. And, you know, maybe if you didn't know enough people in my circle or you were on the fringe of some far away um, social circle of athletes, you might be like, is that, is that a faggot? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I got called faggot. That was great. My first semester there. Who called you a faggot? I don't know. But people behind your back were... Literally behind my back. I walked down the hallway to knock on somebody's door, and the door behind me was open, and somebody in that whole room full of basketball players was like, faggot! And I was just like, I just walked away. Oh, God. Which, sometimes I wish I'd turned around and gotten some faces so that there could have been punishment, but also part of me is glad that I didn't respond in any way. Yeah. That, because I think... Because I never got called faggot to my face again. Yeah. And I think it kind of was like... It, you know, it's like you d- you don't tease someone who doesn't give a good response to it. Yeah, and sure. I I if I gave a response to it, it, would just be to be more gay. Maybe start giving a lap dance or something. So that wasn't that wasn't going to help their case. But for me, when we were the only out people, it was very difficult to be the tokens. Yeah, to be to represent. The gay community. And to field all the questions from the clueless straight people. All of the questions. That, all of the questions. And to feel and to feel a responsibility to always be on your toes. And I think this is very true of any minority, like, in, in a token situation, where you yes. feel this responsibility to be on your game 24-7, because anything you do can reflect badly on your race or your gender or your sexuality. 
And also one thing that I was very aware of was, and part of my striving for perfection and stuff like that in other areas was because I knew that they wanted to discredit me in any way they could because they didn't want to listen to the faggot. And so if it was like I said earlier about if you lose a big thing, you hold on to everything else. And it's like, they're already going to try and discredit me for being gay. I'm not going to give them any other reason to touch me. And it places this unreasonable expectation of being perfect and all that. And your cycles were very difficult for me because you were like constantly running back and forth between like, well, I'm gay, but I'm ex-gay or I'm gay, but I'm side B or I'm not gay or I'm bisexual or I'm dating a woman now or I'm finding healing. And like you sugarcoated things or you were reticent about things or you 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 had this magical way of saying the same thing the same offensive thing to 17 different people (laughs) that if you just put it in plain terms it would be like that's awful but but they all walked away like you could tell them like i'm a filthy sodomite but you found a way to say it to everybody did i i didn't i never said that about you though no no okay good i'm I'm just saying (laughs) I'm, i'm just saying like at the end of the day you could be saying I want to suck men's dicks, but you would find a way to phrase it to people that they would walk away feeling comfortable with the fact that you were gay and a a false confidence. It was, it was like this, like, Oh, it's like, you know, to compare it to another minority. It's like, they would walk away way being like well what a well spoke what a well articulated black person or it's like what an upstanding homosexual i was what a non-bitchy woman i was the very definition of respectability politics oh yeah oh, i yeah. was the very and it's actually taken me a long time to get out of that that headspace and to just be, oh you you it's like, taken me years it's a huge part of you and it I is mean, we haven't hung out as much recently but like that's that's always been a thing that like I've seen about you and it's actually caused a lot of conflict in our relationship because I'm not, I'm not respectability politics. (laughs) And, and, you know, one of the characters that I really relate to massively in, in game of Thrones is Tyrion because I felt like I was born into, okay. So I was born into a ministry family, into a pretty powerful ministry family and into a very influential ministry family. And I was raised in this setting in which I constantly had to make up for this thing in my life and constantly had to prove my worth to people in the same way that Tyrion was born a dwarf and and had to negotiate that and had to rely on on wit and deception and and charm and all of these th- and and basically had to build himself up and it it wasn't until several years ago that i realized that and i was the very picture of respectability politics and i did that because i it was the only way i knew how to survive at the time well and what it ended up happening you never did this to me or directly to me but it ended up like you you never implied that I wasn't respectable because I like, like I said in the past episode about, you know, you seeing me as a worthwhile being. And that's part of the reason why you didn't drag me down into your ex-gay self-hatred. So you never looked at me and was like, well, you're not as respectable as I am. And you never implied it or treated me that way. But the way you talk to everyone else kind of created that implication. Exactly. And a lot of people, it really hurt because I didn't feel like you were 
it really hurt because I didn't always feel like you were, I knew you were there for me, but sometimes you wouldn't admit that you were there for me. Not to other people. It's not like you left me high and dry in a conversation most of the time, but you wouldn't admit to being part of my tribe sometimes, or you would try and sugarcoat, it was more like you would sugarcoat it, yeah. or you would cast it off, and other people would try and take you away from me right. as an ally. I would have conversations and be like, oh no, Stevens, Stevens come to a more, Stevens really worked things out, or Stevens, Steven yeah. really is attracted to women, and or, or anything like that, and I'm like, I got. I remember when I got into that huge fight with Lupin yeah, at Joanna's house yes. because he was. He basically said you were straight or that you had become ex-gay or whatever, and I was like, "Motherfucker, <laughs> you want to measure friendship dicks with me?" Because <laughs> and and you know a lot of so you were hurt by by my respectability politics in life. A, a lot of queer people in my life have felt that way actually. And that is something that over the years I've had to unlearn because I, it took me, it actually, I didn't fully understand what I was doing until I read the new Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander, I think is the author and she lays out what respectability politics is in terms of people of color. And I realized that that is what I had unwittingly been doing. It's like, I'm not black. I'm just OJ. I'm not gay. I'm just Steven. Exactly. And it caused conflicts because, and we were talking about this before we recorded, where you had an instance where somebody in the artistic community in Asheville hit on you. Yes. And it was, I don't even remember, it disconcerted you whether or not because it was improper for them to hit on you or it was because of the age gap or because you were just so deeply uncomfortable with homosexuality or all of the above. All of the above. Like All of the above, yeah. Um, and, it freaked me out. Right. And so... And we were in, I mean, I remember this night vividly. And I remember you talking about this to a bunch of straight guys in the room. And you were talking about like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was at this arts project. And this gay guy who's much older than me was talking, was really hitting me up and like really hitting on me. And it made me very uncomfortable. And it like, I I was, I was just feeding into their biases. Right. And I talked to you about that later. I was like, Stephen you may have been uncomfortable. This may have not been a proper situation. I wasn't there. I'm not saying that anything you're saying isn't true, but you're feeding into their biases. These are all people who think gay people are monsters. Yeah. And you're like telling them stories about the gay monsters. And you were like, well, but I'm just telling the truth. Uh huh. And I was like, it was a, it was a half truth essentially is what was getting to you. Well, it was a half truth and it was, it was motivated by your own self-hatred of the issue and of you. Yeah. And it's like, not that, I mean, it's not that, you know, we need to sugarcoat the truth. It's not, and I'm not saying, oh, the gay world is actually seedy and we need to be careful how we market it to straights. But it's like, if people already assume all the stereotypes, you don't lead off with the true things about the stereotypes. You say, no, there's a much richer and diverse world of this world that you don't understand. And these are the kernels of truth about the, even more so, it's like, I mean, there are seedy people who hit on people in every gender and every sexuality. And so just to tell them stories about gay people just confirms that that's all gay people were. Yeah. That I didn't, like, yeah. just go to, like, I mean, I went to my room and just did my music theory homework one time. Right. <laughs> so. Naked. Right. <laughs> so, 
before we before we end this, I, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the good that was at this Christian college because there was some good. And specifically for me, now for me, the bad definitely outweighed the good. It was definitely a for me a traumatic experience. One thing though that I took away from Montreat, and I think that this is a lesson for other communities was that there is actually among the teachers at that time a greater diversity. There were professors who did fundamentally disagree, who, who did fundamentally believe that homosexuality was sinful. And some of them were bullies about it. And some of them were bullies about it. But some of them were able to engage with me about it in a respectable, in, in a, I just use that word, in a respectful way that was kind, genuinely kind and loving and allowed for disagreement. And it was true. And their commitment was, this is a college. This is a learning experience for him. We don't have to agree, but we can hash out these ideas. And so I had people who disagreed with being gay. And then there were other professors who were totally affirming and who said, I, I was one professor in particular who brought me into her office and said, Stephen, I just need you to know you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I love you. It's great that you're gay. I'm glad you're here. And I totally 100% affirm you. And there are several professors like that. And so I, I encountered this diversity of opinion. And that was actually very helpful for me. Now, I will say on the flip side, I definitely feel like there were some professors who hid or masked or sugarcoated their bigoted perspectives or mm. ideas or approaches or actions behind respectfulness. Absolutely. And that happens a lot with evangelical Christians. It's like, well, I'm going to treat you in an incredibly, you know, demeaning way, but I'm going to do it politely. Absolutely. And that actually came out in some of the articles about the whole faith statement regarding making professors there were certain people who I was close to who worked at the college and I read some of their quotes in newspapers and it really hurt because I really didn't feel like they saw me yes. in the way that they acted like they did. Yes, absolutely. There is, yeah, it's complicated in other words. Yeah. Very, very complicated. And and it's, it is it is damaging to feel like this person is politely believing you're going to hell. That is very Oh yeah, that that's that's very painful. The church's politeness is very destructive. And also, I think one of the other things, and I think we're almost out of time, so I'll kind of wrap up with this thought, is that one of the things that really hurt me also in retrospect um, is that there was there was a belief that the community, the Christian community, was so good that it was good for everyone, and that was. I should have left. I should have transferred. Me too. And, and I didn't. And, and part of it was because... Because we bought into that. And because also because we're not quitters. Like Yeah, exactly. We will, we will be the dead horse and we will let you beat us. We will. Yeah, no, we were totally codependent. We were right. like, we will be the doormat. And, we will let you beat us to death. The, they were selling this message of like, it's good for everybody. We are really diverse. We're not as stringent as other Christian colleges. We're really here for, and we bought so hard into it. And yes. we were like, and we were like, okay, so if it's for everybody, then our 
needs need to be respected and they were like no you're going too far and it's like no we're not we would try and explain that to them and they would just be like no that's not what this school is that's not Montreat. that ooh, that pissed me off and you know to people who who tell who say well why don't you just leave why don't you just leave your christian college why don't you just leave your conservative church my answer is always you do not understand the degree to which it is a it is bound up in your psyche and the degree to which it is part of your identity and the degree to which you genuinely feel helpless. Well, and how much, how much like there's a core value there of this is good for everyone. Exactly. This is good for the goose, the gander, the duck, the owl, the chicken, the flying fish. This is good for everyone. This is good for everyone. And so it isn't a simple question of leaving or not leaving. And it the is, codependence, which we've already discussed. Yeah, and the codependence. It is not a simple question of, of leaving or not leaving. It is a matter of how do you get deprogrammed? How do you get deprogrammed and how do you remove yourself from something you've really placed your whole psyche in? Yeah. And the, the and this is the thought I was starting with because I know you've got to get going. But And that's another thing that really hurt me that like some that people didn't look at me who I know cared about me and just say, Nathan... This environment isn't conducive for you. Yes. You need to leave. Yeah. I wish someone had told me to leave. Yeah, me too. Me too. And um, at the end of the day, I got a diploma. I got a bachelor's degree and like six or seven really close friends, not counting you because I knew you beforehand. Yeah. And I don't, I, I have one good friend from Montreal, not counting you. All right. Well, so basically I wanted to do this episode to communicate the gravity of what it's like to be queer in a Christian college and to not take it lightly. And even when it looks like people are getting it figured out in Christian school, it is still a volatile and destructive experience. Don't take that lightly. And we've really only scratched the surface. Oh, like, man. We could do... so, especially in the high school episode, there's so much institutional stuff. Oh, man. We that... could cover so much more. So if y'all are, if y'all, if y'all gentle listeners are interested in these episodes and want to hear more tell steven so that we record more of these and i get more excuses to come hang out with him absolutely and uh even if you don't like it lie because i don't get to see him enough (laughs) and uh let us let us uh know if you have your own stories with questions stories comments questions uh about being in christian high school or christian college being queer in in those settings so that's our show Nathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. The music is by Matt Langston. The Jelly Rocks artwork is by Justin Kayla Bryant. If you love my work and want to support it, find me at sbradfordlong.com where you can read all of my articles about faith, doubt, mental health, and so on. You can also, please, if you enjoy the show, write a kind review on iTunes or wherever you listen. That'll really help me out. All right. We'll see you next week. Good night and good luck.